0: So people say inequality is unfair. Uh, I happen to agree that it is unfair. Uh, The the conception of fairness I would offer to explain why it's unfair is a little different from the standard one, but set that to one side. The real problem with inequality is that it's inefficient. Uh, You know, all the income gains are being used to buy bigger mansions, more expensive, heavier cars, more expensive wedding receptions, uh, all of those things, when they cascade down and everybody's doing them, don't produce any gains at all in health, well-being, or other other measures of of human satisfaction. That's money uh, that's just flushed down the toilet.
1: Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being?
2: So welcome to the 25th episode of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Today, Terry and I are speaking with Professor Robert H. Frank, the Henrietta Johnson Lewis Professor of Management and a professor of economics at the Samuel Curtis Johnson School of Management at uh, Cornell University. He contributes to the Economic View column at the New York Times, and he's written and spoken broadly uh, and deeply on the topic of wealth inequality in the United States. Robert, welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Jonathan, nice to see you. So uh, Robert, when I invited you on the show, I promised the impossible that we were gonna cover the last three decades of your work. Obviously, we can't really cover everything, uh, but before we dig into specifics, would you give us kind of the arc, starting with the presciently named book, The Winner Take All Society, 1995. That's a long time ago. It seems like we're moving more towards that.
0: Yeah, that that was a book that uh, I co-wrote with a, a, a longtime close friend, Philip Cook. He was uh, a graduate school classmate of mine of at Berkeley, and Uh, It started out with an invitation he got to do a paper on why the the best students from around the country were getting more and more concentrated into the elite universities. Uh, uh, He and I are test cases uh, for this paper. He, He graduated from the University of Michigan in 68. I graduated from Georgia Tech in 66, both state schools, good schools, but not not the the elite schools on the list that most people look to today. Neither he nor I even applied to any of the Ivy League schools or other elite schools like Stanford or MIT or Caltech. Uh, That wasn't on our radar screen even. Uh, Today, and even when we were writing this this paper in the late 80s, uh, students with high school records like ours would have applied to many schools on that elite list. if they'd gotten accepted to any of them, they would have gone almost for sure. So why did that change happen? And it was uh, a, a really interesting exercise thinking about the, the forces that led people to change their minds about where to go. There are there a lot of different things, of course. But rising inequality was a big contributor. the The payoffs to entry-level jobs in certain fields were so great that the recruiters for those firms got mail sacks full of applications. They couldn't possibly look at them all. Who'd they talk to? Uh, they, they threw out all the ones that weren't from elite schools. And so the, the premium to having a degree like that, that would get you in the door uh, became much, much greater. And from there it, it, it continued. Yeah, it was, it was a, a wonderfully stimulating project to work on. Uh, it, it's not a new idea, actually. This, this has been going on uh, ever, ever since the dawn of the industrial age. It used to be that pianos, of course, are very heavy and it was so uh, difficult and costly to ship them that virtually every piano produced in the world was sold to somebody within a, a relatively few miles of the factory where it was made. Uh, now. The, the pianos are made in only handful of locations worldwide. It's very cheap to ship them. Uh, the, the whole uh, industry has consolidated into a handful of firms. And that's a good thing, in a sense, for consumers because you'd rather buy the pianos made by the very best producers. But, you know, there has been an enormous increase in inequality as a result of that. And and as well, we, we uh, reflected on the idea of what it takes to get to be the best. There's a, an enormous dogfight, uh, and and some of the effort that goes into that is productive, but a lot of it is is purely wasteful, as in the, the quest for getting to uh, a, an elite school. You've got parents spending large sums of money and students spending endless hours on SAT test prep, you know, that's a completely socially useless activity. Privately, it's useful. It helps you get in. If you do do it and the others don't, uh, you, you look good relative to them. If they do it and you don't, then you look bad relative to them. If you all do it, it's a waste. I'm not going to tell my son that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well if, if you gave him the whole explanation, he would realize why it was in his interest to do it, even though it's not in everyone's interest that it happened. Right. Yeah, that's one, one of the big themes in my work, uh, which is that what it's rational for the individual to do is often completely senseless if we all do it. We all stand wow. up to see better nobody sees any better than if everybody had remained comfortably seated.
1: Wow. That's so fascinating. And it's a perfect segue into the next question, um, which is so Robert on the mindful wealth podcast, we're concerned with um, how like social, so social structures impact individual outcomes. And so before we dig into like the specific issues of your work, maybe you can just tell us how, what you see as true life success on an individual level.
0: You know, I think I have a, a, a more idiosyncratic view of that than, than many people do. Uh, there, there's uh, Mikhail Chichimahai. Uh, his name's very difficult to pronounce, that was my best effort at it, died recently, but he was the psychologist who identified the psychological state called flow. Mm. Uh, it's when you're uh, deeply immersed in something to the extent that you're completely unaware that the hours are going by. Uh, there, there's no other uh, long-duration state of mind that's more satisfying than that, uh, the state of flow. And I think if you can find uh, a way to organize your life so you experience that state for extended periods of time, that's that's really the most you can hope for. Uh, I've been incredibly lucky. I've I, uh, describe the long sequence of chance events, if any one of which hadn't happened, I wouldn't have been able to hold the position I did at Cornell for many decades and had the chance to think about the ideas that I've developed or write the books that I've had time to write. Uh, th- those experiences are, are, were, for me, deep flow experiences. When I'm in the middle of writing a book, the first thing I want to do in the in the morning is read what I wrote yesterday, uh, I think of ways to make it better, I start tinkering and and then I'm adding to it and and before long it's it's time to open a bottle of wine. And it's it's a if you can if you can find a job that that lets you experience that, that's that's the highest aim I think.
2: What do you think the biggest obstacles are to people finding those jobs?
0: Oh, oh! <laughs> they're too in innu- inn- numerous to to list. I mean, I I got to do what I do uh, by pure dumb luck, really. Uh, you you can steer yourself uh, so that you will have a better chance to to have a pleasurable experience. What we know is that. Uh, there, there's an inverse relationship in the labor market between how much they're willing to pay you and how unpleasant the job is. Uh, if the job is boring, if it's if it if there are bad odors in the place where you work, if if it's dangerous, any of those things, people don't like uh, to fill those jobs compared to other jobs that are more attractive. Employers have to offer higher higher wages wages than in the more pleasant jobs. Uh, The mistake I think too many students make is to take the highest paying job uh, that's on offer. Uh, That won't necessarily be the one that they will like the best. And if you don't like your job, uh, you're not going to be able to get to be a real expert at what's entailed in it. Uh, There's a big debate amongst the people who study the development of expertise. Does it take 2,000 hours or 10,000 hours, no, nobody's sure, but, but they all agree it takes a long time. And if you're not doing something that you like, uh, you're probably not gonna be willing to put in that kind of focus and effort to get to be an expert. And, and here's where the winner take all idea comes in. Uh, if, if you get to be the best at what you do, even if it's a thing that not very many people care about or are willing to pay a lot for, uh, it's so easy to uh, collect the entire world uh, sample of people who care about a thing and and steer them to the person who's best at it that you might make an incredibly good living uh, by being the best at what you do, even if that's not something of that's considered widely important or, or valuable. Uh, maybe you'll stumble onto something that is valuable and you'll get filthy rich. But the very worst outcome, if you go down that path, is you'll end up spending most of your days doing something that's pleasing to you. Uh, now, that may leave you too poor to do some other things that you want to do, but there are workarounds for that too. So th- this, so when I was a kid, um,
2: I came from a very low resource household. As a kid, I'm talking grade school, <clears throat> my goal was to be rich. Uh, and when I was in junior high, I refined it. I wanted to be a millionaire. By the time I got to high school, the goal was to be a multimillionaire. I mean, we, I, what I saw was I saw my friends have stuff and have vacations and their parents drive nice cars and do things that I couldn't do. So I wanted that thing. So I worked with industry and effort and studied hard because I was going to build wealth. Um, I'm wondering if there's room for that ambition. Uh, and, is that ambition a bad thing? Is it is it a bad desire for me to say I want to be wealthy?
0: No, I don't think it is. Uh, you know, there there are different ways to use wealth. Uh, uh, if if all you care about is shiny ob- objects, I think we've got some pretty uh, focused research now that that demonstrates, at least to my satisfaction, that uh, there's at best fleeting. Satisfaction in that one of one of my co-authors and friends, Tom Gilovich, has done a series of papers uh, comparing the effect of purchases of what he calls experiences, maybe a hiking trip, maybe uh, maybe a, 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 a study tour somewhere, uh, as opposed to buying goods or objects. And and uh, it's a very robust set of findings he and his collaborators have come up with. People who Purchase experiences ex, uh, in the wake of those purchases uh, enjoy a much longer boost in psychological well-being. It's much more durable. Uh, they don't tend to compare their experiences unfavorably with the experiences of others, which people often do with goods. Uh, and so if you have a chance to think about the the, the things that you devote. Whatever wealth you, you're able to come up with, on I think it could be a, a wonderfully liberating thing. You know, I, I, a lot of experiences are pretty expensive. That's true.
2: <laughs> that is, that but, is but if, you,
0: if you can't afford those, there are many others that are that are free.
2: But the, is there a is there a negative social impact to having to my having developed wealth? Is uh, that is that an expense to others?
0: What I show in in a number of works that I've done is that uh, there's a, a one very robust finding in the, in the literature that studies the determinants of human flourishing. And that's that in, in a wide swath of consumption domains, w- beyond a certain point when everybody spends more, uh, there's no meaningful increase in health, happiness, thriving by any measure, uh, it just raises the bar that determines how much people feel they need. I think a good example of that is the trajectory of expenditures on wedding celebrations. In, in 1980, in real dollars, uh, that, that was an average in the US of $10,000, uh, uh, $11,000 uh, in, in inflation adjusted dollars. By 2018, it was uh, more than three times that much. It was $36,000. None of the people getting married in 2018 were any happier because they were spending three times as much in real terms. It was just that others were spending that much. And if you spent significantly less than that, then people would go home thinking that you hadn't appreciated what a, a special day it was. Uh, no, no parent wants to host a party where the guests leave thinking that. And so of course you you try to put on a, a, a good show uh, to honor the, the the bride and groom. But, you don't have to spend thirty-six thousand dollars to do that, if unless everybody else is spending that much.
2: I want to follow up on it a little bit, there, Terry. Um, the it's interesting because you I just had an email exchange with a client this morning, and it was about his daughter's like seven, and we're doing some financial planning. Um, and the question was, how much do you want to build in for the wedding? And he said, oh, probably a couple hundred thousand. And so, so you know, I, and I think you've said in some of your other works about the relative prices of houses when you have the ultra rich have a very big house. That means the people just underneath them need a little bit bigger house and the people under them need a bigger house. And it just, it, it sort of cascades downward. And I thought of this $200,000 going, oh my God, that's that's a whole lot. But won't that make everyone say, you know what, we need to spend a little bit more on those weddings.
0: Well, if you ask why is it that the average is 36,000 instead of 11,000, the reason is that others like the, the average uh, family are spending 36000 But that doesn't answer why they're spending 36000 And you just put your finger on it. It's, it's the people at the top. They're the ones who've captured almost all of the income gains since 1970. Uh, I don't know how rich your client is, but many of them spend much more than $200,000 on their daughter's wedding. Uh, the people in the middle don't look at those weddings and say, we got to do that. Uh, of course, they can't do that. But there's a group just below the top. They go to those weddings. Now they need to spend uh, on a, a bigger orchestra uh, and and have it catered from, from a, a bigger name restaurant than before because that's the new standard. And so people who are in their circle uh, come to those weddings and, and it cascades all the way down. The, the median earner uh, in real terms, uh, men at any rate, aren't earning any more per hour than they were in 1970. So they're not spending more because of that. Uh, They're spending more because other people are spending more and others are spending more because people at the top are spending more. Why are they spending more? Because they've gotten all the income gains. Okay. So it's kind of like
1: a thing that shifts its way up the pyramid. Exactly.
0: And, and, and uh, so people say inequality is unfair. Uh, I happen to agree that it is unfair. Uh, the, The conception of fairness I would offer, to explain why it's unfair is a little different from the standard one but set that to one side the real problem with inequality is that it's inefficient you know all of the income gains are being used to buy bigger mansions more expensive heavier cars more expensive wedding receptions uh, all of those things when they cascade down and everybody's doing them don't produce any gains at all in health well-being or other other measures of of human satisfaction, that's money uh, that's just flushed down the toilet. And it's not as if there aren't other critically useful things we could be doing with that money. You know, there it would be quite easy to shift uh, billions, maybe trillions of dollars, to other uses that would actually make a difference in people's lives. But
1: so that leads me to the question. So we have this this issue that, like, let's say, on the one hand, there's this kind of an arms race, which is that anybody who cares about something is going to naturally kind of try to get good at it. Then there's the fact that we like map that onto wealth and economics, right? So like, let's say, you know, for me, if I care about achievement and obviously I care about, you know, building wealth for my family, I also have a a background as a competitive athlete and like, I know what it is to chase after medals. And so there's this kind of personal ambition and the fact that we want to win at whatever game we're playing. And then there's, you know well-being and you know maybe giving back and some of those more yeah. social things how do we map those two things onto each other
0: yeah it's a great question and and i think in in so many domains of life it's not how well you perform in absolute terms it's how well you perform in relative terms that determines how how well you're rewarded and if, in athletics that's certainly true if you could run a a four-minute mile in 1950 in the men's uh, group, you were a hero. Uh, you know, four-minute mile is a good high school runner now. So we, when we have uh, competitive endeavors like that, there's a, a huge incentive on each contestant to try to get better. Some of the steps to get better uh, uh, are more dangerous than others, and so in hockey, One of my economic heroes, Tom Schelling, asked the question, uh, why is it that hockey players skate bareheaded whenever there's no rule requiring helmets, and yet they will vote, often unanimously in a secret ballot, for a rule requiring them to wear helmets? If helmets are so great, he said, why don't you just wear them? Why do you need a rule? And his answer was compelling. It was that If you take your helmet off, you can see better. You can hear better. Maybe you can intimidate rival players more effectively because you're crazy enough to skate without a helmet. They'll give you a wider berth on the ice. uh, Therefore, Uh, you gain an edge. Of course, you're at greater risk of of injury, but the injury is not certain. If it happens, it's going to be in the future. The edge you get is right now. That's a compelling incentive for the athlete, athlete to take the helmet off. But when everybody takes the helmet off, the best response is, of course, for the other side to do the same, then half the teams win and half the teams lose, just like before. And so much better that everybody wear a helmet and everybody have lower risk of injury and have the same competitive balance you would have had before. So we have all sorts of rules like that uh, to try to limit the steps you can take to gain competitive advantage. You can't, I don't know what sport you were uh Terry, did you take uh, steroids, or were you ever under any pressure to? Yeah, uh, there, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I was there, in combat sports, and there was immense. Like, I never did dope, but there was like a lot of pressure.
0: Yeah, there's enormous. Yeah. Pre- and if, and if, you know, in in the in the men's hundred meters, uh, Usain Bolt, Bolt in the World Championships in Beijing in 2015, his winning margin was a tenth of a second. Uh, if you, oh, excuse me, it was a hundredth of a second. If you take steroids, that improves your performance in that sprint by about two tenths of a second. So if steroids can't be detected, there's no possible way an athlete could win unless he took steroids. So yeah, we it, it's an arms race. We try to regulate it, it's it's imperfect. Uh, the steps we take to, to keep people from these mutually offsetting investments uh, are, are not perfect, but they're the best we've got. In the fiscal domain, we've got better tools. Uh, It would be a very simple step to tax people at the top more heavily. They don't want to be taxed more heavily. I think the reason they don't want to be taxed more heavily is that they're worried they won't be able to buy the things that make life seem special. Uh, Those things are always in short supply. What they don't realize, most of them, is that if they're taxed more heavily, so will the other people they have to outbid to get those same things they want be taxed more heavily and nobody's relative bidding power will be affected one iota by that. The same penthouse apartments with sweeping views of Central Park end up in the same hands as before. So those dollars that are now being uh, flushed away and bidding wars for things in short supply could instead be used to fund medical research to to, to come up with uh, uh, in investments in green energy and, and, and other things that would really make a difference in people's lives. Mm-hmm.
2: So there's, there's three things that pop into my head. The, the, the first thing is um, the relative to the arms race. If everyone is taxed more and they, won't, you know, they the relative incomes don't change then the competition will be who can avoid the tax the most efficiently, right? Um, They're doing that already. So Yeah, of course.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and it pays to invest in the people who try to keep people from avoiding taxes. We have been doing the very opposite of that. We've been cutting the budget of the IRS ever since yep. the er, uh, the early 2010s. Uh, what a crazy, crazy move. Uh, really? The What we know is that human behavior of all sorts is highly contagious. Uh, Smoking is very contagious. Uh, uh, Eating healthily is contagious. Uh, Bicycling is contagious. You see putting solar panels on your rooftop, that's contagious too. All these things are contagious. Tax cheating is contagious. Uh, The estimates that the IRS makes of how much they lose by not having better enforcement take no account of the contagion effect. Everybody wants to do the right thing, or most people do. They see their neighbor cheating and getting away with it, but you're a chump uh, if, if you don't cheat, if you feel if you like. And and there are experiments demonstrating that when more of your coworkers cheat, you cheat more too. Mm-mm.
1: But if I can just like, sort of like come back to the end of that question, which is, so yes, we acknowledge that there's an arm race and there's a, like, you know, you know, you've sort of laid out a way in which one could maybe dismantle some of that economically. But how does that sort of mesh with, you know, like individual well-being, because sometimes these things are a bit at cross purposes, right? Like the more I mortgage, you know, um, my time, my stress levels, uh, not taking care of myself in the service of attaining some particular external marker, the more I'm kind of going away from my own well-being. But like when we're tempted to always try to outdo the next person, like how can an individual try to balance some of those
0: things? Yeah, it's it's, it's when individual interests and group interests are in conflict, as they so often are, it's very difficult for individuals to solve that problem. Uh, that's a problem that's best solved by individuals acting collectively. Sometimes you can act collectively on a small private scale. You can form your own groups and adopt norms that are different from what others follow. That can work in some situations. But uh, there was an interesting survey done of associates in law firms. Would you like it if your pay were 10% lower and the number of hours you worked were 10% lower as well? 90% of the people who are surveyed uh, on that question said, yes, they would like it. None of them, almost none of them, would do it unless everybody did. it. Uh, the idea is that uh, if you work less hard than your, your co-workers, you risk being seen as a shirker. You'll be less likely to be promoted to partner in the law firm. To cut back, everybody needs to cut back. Well, what, what can we do about that? We've got all sorts of legislation that attempts to to rein that in. The the Fair Labor Standards Act discourages employers from having you work more than 40 40 hours a week. They have to pay you time and a half if you work more than 40 hours a week. Uh, If you were free to work as many hours a week as you wanted to, you could get ahead of your rivals by working more than they do, and then they would have to work more too. In fields that aren't regulated, mine for example, in terms of the length of the work week, we see assistant professors driving themselves crazy, working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, because they know that if they publish more papers than their rivals, they'll get promoted. If they publish fewer, they'll get fired. Uh, It's very hard to to work out those arrangements, but we can make some progress uh, legislatively. I mean, the the countries that have use it or lose it vacation, uh, uh, in many countries, you get four or five weeks a year. If you don't take it, you lose it. Uh, and and so most people in those countries take the vacation uh, that they're required to take under, under those rules. And we, we have studies that show that uh, if everything else is the same, you got one group that gets a week or two weeks of vacation, another work group that gets four or five, the second group is much, much happier, much healthier. Uh, They're even as productive, Uh, they restore during vacation time and come back uh, and and are more productive. So lots of these things are are just low-hanging fruit. We could could, uh, do a, a little more by way of copying what the Nordic countries have done, what some other countries have done and have a little less of this insistence that we see in the American context that whatever the individual wants is sacrosanct. That's fine as long as what the individual wants is consistent with what the group wants, but individuals want to take their helmets off. The group wants people to wear their helmets and, and you, you just have to acknowledge that conflict. And, and if there are things you can do about it, it's in your interest to do them.
2: I, I The thing that's the most, this is why I wanted you uh, here because you're not moralizing. It's very practical. It's just like, and I think that most economics get stuck into two different sides of the aisle, we're going to battle it out. You're just saying, hey, it's better for everybody if we do it this other way. So let's just think it through and make some decisions. So here's the question. <clears throat> what is the single policy that you could you would change? or that If you wave your hand and it would magically be better, what's the one thing you would do to say, this will make it better for everybody?
0: Well, we need to come up with a way to finance the public investments that have been underfunded and that uh, we know would make a real difference in people's lives. I mean, in this country, a lot of people don't have adequate access to health care. There's just basic things that that are missing in people's lives. Uh, Supplying them would be costly. Uh, The one idea I would push if I had to push one and only one would be to adopt a progressive consumption tax. Uh, Scrap the progressive income tax that we now have. Instead, replace it with a progressive consumption tax. And it sounds complicated. Oh, I gotta save receipts for all my purchases so they can figure out how much I consume. No, you you don't have to do any of that. You simply report your income to the IRS as you do now. We could greatly simplify that and should, but, but set that to one side, report your income. Then document how much you added to your savings during the year. Uh, People do that too, many of us, uh, for tax exempt retirement accounts. The difference between those two numbers, your income minus your savings, that's how much you spent during the year. That amount minus a big standard exemption, maybe $10,000 a person, $12,000 a person, whatever you set it at, is your taxable consumption. Uh, If that's a small number, you don't pay any tax. If it grows, you start to pay tax, and the more that number grows, the higher the tax on the next dollar you spend. That's the tax that would blunt the expenditure cascade. It's the expenditures at the very top that are the ones that are driving the wasteful spending in the middle. The, the fact that now to, to get a house in at the middle of the housing distribution, if you don't get a house priced in the middle of the housing distribution, your kids go to the the schools with metal metal detectors out front. So to to blunt that arms race, uh, getting people to spend less at the top is the key step. Uh, And very high marginal tax rates on the next dollar spent beyond a certain point is the simplest and most effective way to do that. If somebody has a really compelling reason for adding a $2 million addition to his mansion, fine, go ahead and add it. Instead of costing you 2 million, maybe now it'll cost you 4 million or 6 million. The tax rate can be more than 100% beyond a certain point. It just makes the next thing you spend cost you more than it would have. And people object, oh, well, the rich are so rich, they'll just ignore that. No, we know that the rich are influenced by prices because in New York, uh, you know, there are many billionaires in New York. They could live in the whole building. They don't. They live in a penthouse on the top of the building, maybe the penthouse has uh, 30,000 square feet. That's what Trump claimed his apartment had. Uh, uh, But probably it has only 10 or 11,000 square feet. That's how much his apartment really does have. Uh, But that in New York seems like an enormous space. Why? Because housing prices are so expensive in New York. That's big. Big is a relative concept. Uh, And to have big escalate uh, is just wasteful. Everybody likes big. Well, you can have big at, at one scale, or you can triple everything, and it's still just you have big. That's wasteful. I am a pragmatist. I people. Uh, I, I vote left mostly uh, because I think the inequality issue is the big one, and and they've they've always been the ones uh, ones who've tackled that most head on. But uh, every policy I recommend, uh, I would defend as being nonpartisan because if adopted, it would make the pie bigger. And one thing we know is possible is if you can make the economic pie bigger, it's necessarily possible to be able to divide it up so that everybody gets a bigger slice than before. And how can anybody object to that? I mean, if you, if you think that's not a good idea, what, you think people have all the resources they need to pursue uh, their their human goals, what, what, a, what an odd thing to believe.
1: Uh, well, as long I, as there's more pie involved,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, i say yes. Yeah, well, it, uh, the numbers are not small. I mean, the, these arms races uh, yeah, yeah. waste by my back of the envelope calculation, $3 trillion a year, at least in the US, probably much more than that, but I could point to evidence that, sh- that shows it's at least that much. That's, that's a huge amount of money.
1: Thank you for joining us for episode 25 of the Mindful Wealth podcast. We enjoyed this conversation with economist Robert H. Frank so much that we decided we just had to have him back for part two in two weeks. Thank you and enjoy the episode.